I'm Mark Woods, back with another Page One podcast, and today have Ben Konark and Andrew Pantazzi, uh, which I think, think is fitting from inside. If this is to take you inside our newsroom, they sit across from each other, and uh, that could be a, a podcast unto itself. Uh, correction, we do not sit across from each other. We oh. stand oh, yeah. across from yes. each other. We both have standing desks. <laughs> I just want to say this is fake news. This is true. They have standing desks, which makes it even more entertaining, but... That could be a whole other podcast. Um, so today, yeah, I wanted to talk about um, a lot of stuff going on with criminal justice, which both of you um, obviously cover very well and very detailed uh, stuff, both statewide and locally. Um, so I wanted to start with Amendment 4 and the story you wrote about what happened Tuesday, Andrew. Um, you know, voters approved Amendment 4 in 2018 midterm elections, restoring voting rights for people convicted of felonies who had completed their sentences, um, excluding convictions for murder or sex felonies, right? And estimates it affected 1 million people. Is that right? Yeah, the sentencing project has estimated it affects about 1.5 million people. Um, those estimates are still very hard to understand because we don't know where people go after they leave prison, whether they stay in state or not, um, after they complete the terms of their sentence, which can be just a probation sentence. Um, it's really hard to estimate how many people have felony convictions, but the sentencing project has done the most um, extensive work on it. And their estimate is 1.5 million people, which uh, is a really large number of people. I think that's something like 7% of Florida's population um, who are disenfranchised. Um, granted, we also don't know how many of those people are citizens, so it, and we don't know how likely they are to turn out. Um, so we still haven't seen what the impact is going to be, but anytime people get their voting rights restored, um, as happened on Tuesday, um, uh, I think that that's a, a sign for a, a expansion of democracy. And here in Duval County, we saw about 100 people in person go downtown, um, plenty more registered online. We don't know the final numbers of people who registered online or turned in their registrations at one of the Jacksonville Public Library locations. Um, but we seem to see a, a lot more um, interest than even I was expecting for a first day. Um, a lot of people were coming down. Uh, one guy I talked to, he just saw a TV news segment Tuesday morning um, about the fact that people could now register. And he's, I think, 56 years old, and he's never once voted in his mm -hmm. life. Um, he got a conviction when he was about 19 years old. And so he went down to register for the first time he was in such a rush, he forgot his glasses, so he was using this magnifying glass on the on the records. And then he just had some basic questions that he'd never had to confront before, one of them being, what are the political parties? Which party should I choose, right. uh, Republican or Democrat? Um, the clerk at the office obviously couldn't tell him you know, what to choose. Uh, she just explained that if you are no party affiliation, then you can't vote in the primaries. Um, he ended up choosing Democrat, but... Uh, there yeah, are people like who, detail. That was yeah, detail, yeah, like there are people who've never been able to be engaged in the political process at all, who are uh, grown um, adults, um, uh, some in their fifties. Another guy was in his seventies. Um, people who are for the first time getting to really engage in the process, um, and uh, they were just they were giddy, they were excited. Um, 
uh, Tuesday to go there and to get their registration. Yeah, you had some great details. I was just mad you hadn't suggested it to me as a column once I read it. No, it was, um, d- the descriptions, I like the one of, I think it said Corey Moore, 42, was one of the first in line, and how he came dressed for the occasion. He was red sweater, button-down shirt, um, how he wanted to vote in 2008 for Barack Obama's first African-American president, wasn't able to, um, and he was uh, his felony was driving with a suspended license, and that prevented him from voting, mm-hmm. which y- you pointed out that was a, a frequent thread in this. And that's, you know, for Ben, that's something you've reported on. So maybe you can talk about, we can segue into sure. some of your stories there. Walking you- While Black, right. So, yeah, in the Walking While Black series, we found that a great deal of pedestrian tickets, nearly half of the ones issued in the five-year period we looked at, led to suspended licenses. Um, so when we had that report, one of the questions we got was, you know, is this, can this lead to someone's voting rights being taken away? And we both hadn't had any experience with that, but we said, yeah, uh, theoretically it could. And then yesterday we saw real people who had similar experiences to that. And there, I think from your reporting, it was it's it's basically a sixty-five dollar ticket, right? Yeah. So the pedestrian ticket costs sixty-five dollars, and then if you can't or don't pay that, you can get your license suspended. And if you have your license suspended and you keep driving because you have to get to work, you can get pulled over and eventually get a felony driving with a suspended license. And even if you don't do prison time, that felony conviction can prevent you from registering to vote. Right. So that this kind of was a great real-time example of the ripple effect of the stuff you wrote about. Yeah, Yeah, and and, you know, one thing we didn't get into, because Walking While Black was obviously about racial disparities in pedestrian ticketing, I know the Sentencing Project data, it shows a very heavily racially skewed numbers for the disenfranchised people in Florida. Um, So this is not, you know, this is not an issue that affects white and black people at the same way. You know, this is, uh, when you look at who's being disenfranchised by these laws, it is largely affecting black people. Uh, It's also largely affecting uh, specifically black men. Um, One of the things that you see um, is the gender gap um, among voter registration statistics. There's something like a 20% gap, or it might be a little bit higher than that, um, 22, 23% gap between black men and black women um, in terms of registrants. Um, so if you look at the black voter population, something hmm. like 62, 61% of uh, black registered voters in Duval County are women, hmm. whereas it's like 39% are men. Um, part of that is that there is a gender gap in the population, both because people are either in prison or have died prematurely, um, but that does not account for all of that. Um, if black men were uh, registering at the same rate as black women, if there weren't the felony disenfranchisement. I did a statistical analysis once that showed that there was something like 1,600 or 1,500 missing black men on the rolls. If they just registered at the same rate as uh, black women. Um, So that's not even saying that's the number of people who are disenfranchised. That's just if they still continue to register at the same rate, uh, what it would likely be. the other thing is there's the poverty trap. There's if you can't pay your court fines, you get mm-hmm. your driver's license taken. Right. But there's also um, any drug offense and you get your driver's license suspended, even if it's a misdemeanor um, pot possession, um, which 
is really difficult because I've talked to Bill Cervone, who's the prosecutor in Gainesville, um, a state attorney who has a lot of rural counties um, uh, surrounding Gainesville, and he's talked about how you're taking away someone's ability to drive to work. Um, especially you think of uh, Jacksonville or you think of rural counties where you have to drive to get anywhere and just prosecuting someone uh, for a marijuana possession and they might lose their license. And then when they're trying to drive to work and they get pulled over and they have a driving with a suspended license. Um, Hmm. I should say it takes your third offense before it's considered a felony. Um, Then they call you a habitual offender and that's when it's a felony. Hmm. But the people I talk to, I check their records after the fact and sure enough, their first felony conviction was a driving with a suspended license. Um, uh, one guy had um, eight convictions, five of them. So when Ben and I are reporting, we're talking about um, it's like prison population. And these people don't contribute to the prison population. Often they're not getting a prison sentence. Hmm. Um, so these are not the people who are filling up our prisons, but these are the people who fill up the number of people who get felony convictions. These, these are easy to forget about just how... Um, how simple in Florida you can get a felony conviction. Yeah, and another thing, just to go on a little tangent here, is I've talked to uh, police when I covered the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office. I've talked to officers who would talk about this offense, uh, driving with a suspended license, and they have discretion over whether or not to give a felony. Hmm. It's not like they catch you for the third time and and they have to give you a felony. Hmm. They can still give you a misdemeanor, so they have discretion over whether they want to give you a felony over this thing. So. If they if they want to be lenient, they can on this charge. Somebody asked me yesterday that you know leading up to this, Governor Elect DeSantis was saying kind of not so fast. You know, we this what has played out with that um, as far as Amendment Four. Yeah, so Governor Elect DeSantis, uh, when he was Governor Elect, he's now Governor. Right. Um, uh, he spoke to our colleagues down in Palm Beach at the Palm Beach Post, and he indicated when he spoke to them, that he did not think Amendment 4 was self-implementing, which is to say that uh, January 8th, the Constitution is revised. Um, so that's yesterday. The mm-hmm. Constitution changed. Um, he believed it still needed a law passed by the legislature to make it take effect. Um, however, he appointed as Secretary of State Mike Ertel, who was the Seminole County Supervisor of Elections, who is widely seen as an avid supporter of voting rights, um, Mike Rattel said, no, uh, Amendment 4 takes effect um, on Tuesday. It is self-implementing. Mm-hmm. Mike Rattel, uh, who will oversee the election apparatus, um, took a contrary view. So at that point, um, okay. kind of what his personal views are don't matter as much as the people who he is appointing to implement it. Um, the Division of State has said uh, people who registered yesterday are registered. They are, they are currently registered to vote. They are not checking their felony records for the meantime. They're putting a pause on that until they figure out how to do this. Um, The Amendment 4 said, upon completion of terms of sentence, and there's still some debate about what that means. Mm. Um, Obviously, it means completing your prison and your probation sentence. But does it also mean you have to pay all your court fines and fees? Does it mean you have to pay your restitution um, costs? Um, that's what's unclear. And if it does mean that, uh, the state 
has not been tracking whether you do that currently. Hmm. So they'll have to come up with some way to track, are you paying all your court fines and fees? Because Department of Corrections can tell you if someone's done with probation Hmm. and done with prison. Um, Department of Corrections doesn't likely know if someone paid for their public defender fee, um, which is one of many fees that you get tacked on. Hmm. Um, This also goes to a larger issue of Florida has a lot of court fines and fees. It's how we fund our court system. Most uh, uh, Originally, we funded our court system through taxes. Now we tend to try to fund it through uh, fines and fees on criminal defendants. Um, and so that leads to another discussion of uh, the poverty trap. Are we um, trapping people who can't afford these types of things from being able to uh, exercise. Uh. I would love to jump in there just on this fines and fees issue because this is something that I kind of got onto when I started Walking While Black and it's and I've seen it as a thread even throughout prison reporting. I've done a lot of reporting on JPay and the private companies that mm-hmm. charge fees and yeah. um, to inmates and their families. So just on the pedestrian, or sorry, just on the driver's license suspension issue, uh, there's a state senator down in St. Petersburg named Jeff Brandis and he was trying to modify this law so that people could do community service if they had a financial hardship instead of paying these fines. And part of the reason he ran into so much pushback is because the state of Florida makes about $40 million a year hmm. reinstating driver's licenses. That's a big number, right? Yeah. So we're, we're, we've set up this system where po- we're criminalizing poverty, and, it's, and you can see it throughout every step of the way. You can see it in pedestrian enforcement here in Jacksonville, uh, we write more tickets in poor areas. We're not writing a lot of pedestrian tickets in San Marco or Riverside. Um, and then you see it in other aspects of the criminal justice system, like sentencing, which uh, Andrew has written about. You see it in prison itself, and you see it when you get out of prison. So mm-hmm. it's just a thread that runs throughout the criminal justice system is the criminalization of poverty and the racial disparities that are tied into that. Mm-hmm. Andrew, you touched on governor's uh, appointments. That seems like a natural to lead into what, Ben, you've written about um, the new Department of Corrections secretary, uh, Mark Inch, and how he abruptly left post overseeing Federal Bureau of Prisons yeah. in May. Um, and he was kind of depicted as a roadblock to reform. And now yeah. uh, we're thinking maybe very differently. So tell me, I mean, maybe first of all, step back. What would you, you know, maybe this is... We could have long whole series of podcasts, but the issues of the prisons, what is the state of them? What's their biggest issues they're facing right now? Yeah. And then tell me about Mark Inch. Yeah, so the issues with the prisons are, it's kind of a laundry list, right? So they're, they're uh, not in good shape right now. Um, our inmate population has remained more or less static, but funding is down. Um, the Department of Corrections asks for more money and doesn't get it from the legislature. So the outgoing secretary, Julie Jones, had kind of been in this hard position of she was brought into reform, but she didn't have any resources. Mm-hmm. And David Richardson, who I quote in my story, was a former House lawmaker based out of Miami and Miami Beach. And he basically said she was tasked to turn around a battleship in a swimming pool, <laughs> um, a, which is how quote. can you yeah. how can you change the culture in a Department of Corrections if you're dealing with corrections officers who haven't had a raise in, in seven years? Mm-hmm. And I talked to a lot of staff members at DOC, and morale is a huge issue. Hmm. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Morale is caused by uh, – the lack of morale is caused by a stagnant pay. Um, retention's really bad. You have officers who come in 
they get two or three years of experience and then they go to the local sheriff's office because they can get paid a lot more hmm. and, and have better working conditions. Hmm. So that's that personnel issue is really kind of the linchpin to a lot of other issues. Hmm. Because when you have inexperienced staff, you have uh, more problems with corruption, right? Guards who are there. I've talked to one person who's a corrections officer and his only experience before becoming a corrections officer was he was a food runner at P.F. Chang's. Hmm. So you can go from that and you're 19 years old and suddenly you're, you know, because there's a lack of staffing, you're in charge of a block, right? And wow. then you're getting hacked by inmates who are, hey, come over here. You know, I, I, I need, uh, you know, a pack of cigarettes. I can give you $500. And, hmm. and that's how it starts. Hmm. So the, this is a ripple effect that comes from underfunding a corrections department. Hmm. Um, so that's what Mark Inch is going to take over. And it's actually interesting. Uh, his appointment caught a lot of people off guard. We'd been hearing rumblings about it. I'd been hearing it from my sources that Julie Jones was on her way out. There was no rumors about who would replace her. And when the news broke that day, one of my first calls was to Senator Brandis because this guy's tapped into the prison system to a degree that most lawmakers aren't. Mm -hmm. And he was caught off guard, or at least he said he was caught off guard by it. Uh, so we were looking into kind of what's been written about this guy because he was just overseeing the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And he had been depicted in some national media reports in May as being opposed to federal prison reform. Hmm. And then, so that was kind of our first glance impression. And then we just kept reading and found more recent articles and an op-ed by him. And then the tone on Twitter and online just kind of changed when this hmm. op-ed surfaced and you have mostly conservative lawmakers who are reform-minded looking at the Department of Corrections who are saying, this might actually be a, a good thing. This guy, he might be who we need. It I think it's also worth noting, um, so Senator Brandis, again, has been the biggest leader on criminal justice reform, uh, both saying we, um, we need to spend more money on our prisons and we need to reduce the prison population right. if we're going to have humane conditions. Um, he's also been uh, on the driving with suspended licenses. He's been the leader. He's been the leader on a lot of the big sentencing reform issues. Um, and his top legislative aide was picked by DeSantis to be his um, – uh, policy director. Mm -hmm. um, so DeSantis has picked a lot of the people that reformers uh, would like to see in his administration. This comes despite the fact that DeSantis on the campaign trail struck a very tough on crime message um, and said that he supported mandatory minimums, uh, said he didn't see a need for change um, to the prison system. But he has empowered a lot of people who have been calling for change. And then we see, again, Mark Inch taking over um, uh, at the Department of Corrections where Mark Inch, um, in his op-ed, it was really remarkable that uh, he not only said that the First Step Act in Congress needed a pass for federal criminal justice reform, but also that it was just a first step. And the next step needed to look at violent crimes. And he specifically said in the states. He said that states need to look at changing how they handle violent crimes. And in Florida, violent crimes make up more than half of the offenses that people are put in prison for. Um, so that, that to me is significant. If you have the head of Department of Corrections who also is a army general um, who's going to the legislature and saying, I need this, mm -hmm. um, I think the Florida House might be more amenable to right. passing reforms. Because the Senate, 
the Senate is very fine with reforms. The Senate passes reforms and they have no problem with it. It's in the Florida House where those bills go to die. Hmm. Um, the Florida House often is very reluctant to pass these changes, and that's where a lot of reforms get watered down or they never pass at all. I think that someone like Mark Inch um, coming in there would have a lot more of a say. Um, it's similar in my mind. Um, Oklahoma has the highest incarceration rate in the country. And the head of their correction system, Joe Albaugh, um, uh, is this like really uh, loud-spoken cowboy-type figure who wears you know cowboy boots, is very large man, very intimidating man, who comes in and kind of barks um, at legislators that they need to change the system because it's unfair, it's underfunded, and that they have to do these types of changes. And I think someone like that goes a longer way with conservative lawmakers who are hmm. on the fence. Um, than maybe an academic type would. Yeah, it's interesting that we touched on violent offenses too, because that's kind of the third rail in criminal justice reform. There's a lot of consensus that we shouldn't be locking people up for drug offenses, but mm-hmm. when you talk about how to reform sentencing for violent offenders, it, it gets a little more tricky. It's also interesting, we keep talking about conservative lawmakers. Here in Florida, that's really the engine for criminal right. justice reform. It's coming from not just conservative lawmakers, but conservative advocacy groups. So there's a fixation on the, on the left with private prisons. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe tied to Rick Scott and, and his potential interests in that industry. But, you know, when you look at Florida and the issues that Florida has, you know, private prisons, there's only seven facilities. It's a fraction of our inmates. Hmm. So Brandis and the Republican lawmaker has been really focused on improving the, the conditions at our state prisons hmm. while changing the sentencing to get less people in there. Um, and I don't know, Andrew, have you had a discussion with Senator Brandis about violent offenders, or do you know where he stands on uh, how he would address sentencing for violent offenders? Um, yeah, I, he proposes a ton of bills um, each session. Um, uh, during the governor's campaign, I actually sent a list of all of his bills to DeSantis's uh, team, uh, all of his bills on criminal justice issue to say, are there any of them that he would be willing to sign? And it was something like, might have been 15 bills. Um, so he he has a very holistic approach, which includes violent crimes, but he also has a very realistic approach. Um, so he, uh, I think he tends to say, where is the legislature now? What is actually possible to get passed? Um, Governor Scott um, was not a loud voice either for or against on these issues. Um, he was uh, very absent from talking about prisons um, at all. Uh, so uh, uh, he kind of seemed to defer a lot to the attorney general, who was m- more tough on crime. Um, so Brandis, I think, saw the tea leaves, and his focus has been on um, nonviolent offenses, things um, – like the flow, like we were talking earlier, where driving with a suspended license might not put you in prison, but it will give you a felony conviction. So can we focus on something like that? Can we focus on drug weight thresholds? In Florida, there are three types of drug offenses. There's possession, there's sale, and there's trafficking. And what you get charged with really depends on how much you have of a substance. So for example, if you have a fake prescription, you go to the pharmacy and you pick up some Oxycontin or, or whatever, you get some painkillers, that is almost certainly going to be a trafficking threshold. 
Um, even though you're getting it just for yourself, it's going to be a trafficking threshold that comes with a large mandatory minimum because the weight of those pills is going to be so high. And mm. they don't care about the purity of the pills. They care about the weight of the pills, mm. um, which is just baffling. Um, and so he has focused a lot on things like that, the, the drug weight thresholds. He's focused on reentry services. Um, how do we make sure that people who are coming out of prison are prepared to reenter society? Um, that's been a lot of the focus. Um, we haven't heard a lot of talk about violent crime. So if that does change, um, that would be new. Yeah, on the issue of recidivism. So what recidivism is, is when you exit prison and reoffend and, and get back, put back in prison. It's a big issue in Florida. And I believe, Andrew, what are we at for recidivism rates? It's in line with the national average, right? Yeah, our, our recidivism rate is actually fairly decent. It's better than the national average, mm-hmm. um, but that's partly because the national average, um, uh, uh, am I allowed to say sucks um, on the podcast? <laughs> it sucks fair. pretty bad. Yeah, <laughs> It's putting it lightly. Yeah, so that's been a big focus here in Florida, is, and that's something that um, Mark Inch went over in detail in his op-ed where he was talking about the need to not only um, rehabilitate but also to restore and make sure that when you get out of prison, you have some support network so that you're not dropped off at a McDonald's somewhere, which does happen. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a literal story. Yeah, that is a story I got uh, that I didn't write, but it was you know down in uh, South Florida somewhere hmm. uh, where there was uh, you know some inmates being released. You have to be released to an address, and they were being released to a McDonald's there. Wow. Um, so you get out, you have no money. Uh, you have nowhere to go, mm-hmm. and you're dropped off in a McDonald's, and your odds of reoffending, um, especially the way we police here in Florida, are, are pretty high. Uh, so it's a, it's a cycle, and it's a giant waste of money. Hmm. So that's where a lot of this effort on reform is focused, because it's unfortunately one of the first things that get, that gets cut. So we had a funding shortfall last year, or two years ago now, I guess, and you know their answer, they were... They were, the Department of Corrections was basically like, well, we can either pay for inmate health care or we can pay for some of these rehabilitation and reentry services. <laughs> and so that's what got cut. And what's what's insane about that? So there was this downfall. Um, I forget what it was, 30 million or, like 28 or something. Yeah. So about 30 million dollar downfall where they had underestimated the costs. This came after, uh, again, legislators like Brandis um, uh, had been out there saying this was going to happen. It did happen. And the legislature, meanwhile, has this massive surplus, a ton of money that they've got that they're putting in their rainy day budget. And they've got all this other money, but they're not giving it to the Department of Corrections because no one wants to spend money on prisons. Um, uh, The thing is, uh, not spending money on prisons is bad for guards, bad for inmates, uh, and bad for the community because these people will be more likely to reoffend if you don't fund the prisons. Um, So... Julie Jones is out there saying, I proposed all these rehabilitation services. I'm going to have to cut them. I'm going to have to cut mental health services and mental health treatment. I'm going to have to cut rehabilitation. I'm going to have to cut vocational training, all because you won't give me the money that you were supposed to give me. Mm-hmm. And that's what happens when the legislature is unwilling uh, to fund what is really the most expensive secret part of society. Um, the Department of Corrections, the prison population is the same as it was 10 years ago, but the budget is higher than ever, partly because our inmate population is so old. Hmm. Um, our population is getting older and older and older. Last I checked, it was something like 20 million people were considered elderly inmates. Yeah. Or, sorry, not 20 million, 20,000 people were considered elderly inmates. Yeah. 
Um, and those inmates are very expensive. They have lots of medical costs. And it's very difficult to release them because the reason they're so old and they've been in prison so long is they've done very heinous crimes. Right. This gets us back to violent offenders and that third rail is hmm. like, are, are we locking people up because we're afraid of them still? Or are we locking people up because they've done something horrible and we haven't forgiven them? And that's the question we have to grapple with. What is the purpose of incarceration? Hmm. If this person no longer poses a threat to society because they're wheelchair bound, but they were convicted of a triple homicide, are we comfortable letting someone like that out? Hmm. And that's the kind of conversation about violent offenders that you know hasn't really taken place yet. Um, there's another subject I want to touch on of visitation. Um, this has been a huge issue in the last couple mm-hmm. years and when I first started covering prisons, was my first project was kind of focused on visitation. There were a lot of visitors getting strip searched here in Baker County um, and also all across the state. And this ties into recidivism and it ties into reoffending because the Department of Corrections, as it's gotten shorthanded on staff, has dramatically uh, uh, been cutting visitation, it's been reducing visitation, it's been trying to reduce visitation and getting a lot of pushback from inmates and their loved ones. So the, the department, while doing this, says we recognize the importance of visitation. We know it's really crucial to provide the support network to people so that they don't get out and reoffend. And at the same time, they're, cu- they're trying to cut visitation in half. Hmm. The, the background to all this is that we're introducing video visitation. And that's something you have to uh, pay for. Hmm. So it's... It's kind of this web of things that are happening right now where you have a lot of private companies that are doing more business and getting more money out of inmates and their loved ones. So in one of the recent articles I did, I described it as shifting the cost burden, where you know prisons, as Andrew pointed out, are more expensive than ever, but we're also getting more revenue than hmm. we ever have mm-hmm. off of these people who are incarcerating in their families, charging them higher fees, uh, getting new contracts for the canteens and the prisons that make more money. So this is a tricky part where it's not that, you know, you'll see a lot of criticism saying, you know, prisons shouldn't be profit centers. Well, they're not. We're not making money off our prisons at all. In fact, we're spending lots lots of money to keep them hmm. the way they are. But that doesn't mean that we're not increasing the cost burden on incarcerated people and their loved ones because that, that is also happening. Hmm. Well, from the kind of the 20,000 foot view, I find it interesting that, you know, it feels like um, candidate DeSantis in this era would would be a, just a continuation of where we've been in the past. But right now it feels like, well, uh, it might be very different um, in this area and environment and some other things. So that could be a whole other podcast just where we're headed. But I, I do find this aspect of it very interesting, but a lot of different things. Um, I don't know exactly how he's going to govern and where where the state's headed but it is intriguing well i mean andrew you can correct me if i'm wrong but you know i'm not a political reporter and andrew does more politics coverage than i do but you know it seemed to me like there was always hope from the very beginning when DeSantis was running against uh adam putnam that he was if either of those two were going to be open to criminal justice reform, it was always going to be DeSantis. Putnam made it very clear that he was going to veto any kind of reform effort. Mm. He was very much in a mold of Rick Scott that way. And DeSantis was less of a known quality. So when DeSantis's campaign got off the ground, and it wasn't a very long campaign, and his, you know, his rhetoric kind of took a lot of people off guard, 
and there were some rumblings in the conservative criminal justice reform, like, oh, great, like, what is this all about? And from my point of view, it seems to have been purely political. Yeah. Um, it was a way to cast himself as a foil to Andrew Gillum. Mm. Um, so now that he's in office, that's no longer useful to him. Mm. And our, it's, the question to me is, are we seeing the real Ron DeSantis policies come out or do we even, does Ron DeSantis even really have there's a lot strong of un- opinions on There's a lot of, of unknown, which is what yeah. makes it kind of interesting to see what happens now. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if Ron DeSantis has um, a set of policies that he believes in in criminal justice. He, he's a lawyer who was a um, uh, military lawyer. He's, he's worked in the realm of criminal justice, but I don't know that he has a strong set of policies. Um, uh, when I uh, asked him about this on the campaign trail, um, he was not, uh, you know, super on top of it saying, you know, here's exactly the policies I want to implement. Um, and again, that did give hope to people because Adam Putnam put out a very extensive white paper that had a lot of things in there that um, uh, reformers would say are completely inaccurate um, uh, about what causes crime to decline. He said that we need to have tougher crimes. Um, he promised to veto any effort to change the laws, even though those efforts are being led by Republicans and conservative think tanks. Um, he was very much taking a hardline position, even though when you look at the two candidates, you know, one looks like Opie and he looks like he's uh, 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 this, you know, uh, friendly, moderate Republican who, when he was in Congress, um, was a moderate Republican. Um, and so people think of Adam Putnam as the more moderate choice. When it came to criminal justice issues, um, Adam Putnam certainly was a hardline, um, far right position, um, which is kind of out of the mainstream. Ron DeSantis, when he was in Congress, uh, was one of the people who signed on to the First Step Act, um, which was a criminal justice reform measure that gave people some hope. He had voted for the Juvenile Justice uh, Reinstatement Act or whatever it's called. He had voted for some things that uh, would indicate that he supported reform. Um, And then he was just mostly silent throughout the primary. And the only time he spoke about criminal justice is when I asked him and he said that he opposed all the policies that Andrew Gillum supported, <laughs> even though Andrew Gillum was supporting all the policies that conservatives support. <laughs> so it was it was hard to know if he was just trying to oppose Gillum. Anyway, the people he has put in power so far are um, definitely people who are reformers. Another one we haven't mentioned is Simone Marstiller. She's a former appellate judge for the First District Court of Appeals. She's going to be the new secretary of the Department of Juvenile Justice. Um, she has been uh, a big name in reform circles. She goes to a lot of the reform meetings. Um, uh, she, um, uh, I, I don't know if this is true, but I've liked to joke that she stepped down from the first DCA so she could have her First Amendment rights back because she's a, a, a fun voice to follow on Twitter hmm. who uh, will talk about reform. Um, efforts. Um, so I, that's another one leading juvenile justice, which the Miami Herald's reporting has been um, has shown just how atrocious those are. Um, uh, which goes, I mean, full circle back to private prisons. Whereas the state prison system is very much public prisons, not private prisons. The state juvenile justice system is private contracts that are being mismanaged um, and. Uh, poorly handled, and that's leading to kids being put in violent situations. Yeah, and that that appointment of Simone Marsiller really seemed to send a huge shockwave through the reform community, not in a bad way, and that's what, when I was talking to people from these reform advocacy groups about Mark Inch, they Hmm. had more hope that Mark Inch would be 
open to reform because of the appointment of Marstiller. Because, you know, the as we've seen with Julie Jones, who ran the Department of Corrections under Rick Scott, you know, she came in kind of guns blazing when she first started her term. She was way more vocal. She wasn't afraid to contradict the governor on some things. And she was more casting herself towards a reform angle and then that, you know, walk that back. Mm. So that dynamic of if you have the support of a governor who's open-minded towards these things and you have funding from the legislature, you know, the, the quote that I led with in my article from Brandis was, we could have the best prison system in the country in four years, hmm. which is an astounding quote if you know Jeff Brandis, because he's not an optimistic guy <laughs> when it comes to Florida prisons. Hmm. Um, but I guess the point he was trying to make was that if we have a governor who is going to put um, you know, someone in here who's open to these policy changes, and if we can have this guy convince some of my lawmaker friends mm-hmm. to put more money into this apartment, we could see a pretty dramatic shift. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that is definitely interesting. I also wanted to point out, um, you know, our, our audience uh, listening to this can't see Andrew's haircut. That was uh, I had that on my list. If you look at my notes, that was my closing. But people, one very important issue to talk about. I was going to close with that. People in glass houses should not throw stones and call other people Opie when they have a top knot. That's my only. Can, can ben, I, I would just I would just like to also point out that of the three of us, I have the most hair. Yeah, I don't. Um, I, don't I, I, I I do not have the the thinning hair that. Uh, that uh, Ben over here does, or, or Mark. I just, uh, I, I'm going to come out and have my opposition research right here on the table. That's also not true. His hair is thinning. <laughs> I don't just get trying to, to cover it. I do not get on. to comment on this, but Ben, can you describe Andrew's hair? How you? If, and for those of you who want to see it, Ben has posted a picture yeah, I, on Twitter. So yeah. you can go to my Twitter feed and look for it. But but, but descri- try describing well, it. You know, we we looked online and we found the analogy of a trash bag that you tie at the top. Um, that little that little knot on top of a trash bag, and also an onion. An onion, yeah, yeah. yeah an onion that has that little uh, kind of offshoot on the top. So, so, so are we so, cutting? So, are we cutting this? No, this no, no, no. this has so, to make it. So, someone posted a picture of a cartoon character named uh, Agnes. I, I don't yeah, know I what don't show. Know, what, I don't know what that's from. Yeah, I don't know what that was from. Uh, but uh, it, it did look pretty uncanny. Um, I'd like to say that I look like Agnes. <laughs> Yeah, it's a strange mix of defensiveness and kind of embracing this. New, uh, we, don't, we don't know where this is going. Yeah, yeah. He had a paperclip in his hair for a, a week. I think Ben posted something of that. So now it's a rubber band. So we, we don't know what is next. But I'm starting to rethink my Twitter shaming strategy because it only seems to embolden him. <laughs> so, okay. Well, that can be the whole next podcast. The two okay. of you standing at your... Uh, so, so, Standing at your decks. I mean, th- this leads into occupational licensing yeah. and, and how we uh, license uh, barbers in the state. Well, there are barbers in prison, and <laughs> it looks like one of them cut Andrew's hair. <laughs> that, that's not fair. Th- there are good barbers yeah, in right, prison. Right, yeah. I cut my own hair. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks to Ben and Andrew for being here, and thanks obviously we'll... Has been a busy couple years, both of you, with stories on this, and there'll be a lot more to come. Uh, Very interesting. So thanks for being here. All right.